By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. I'm not very interested in things that can't change or mm. don't change. So I think all of us can make the most of our potential. And that's the bit as a social psychologist that fascinates me. The challenge is how do you do it? How do you do it? And when I looked at these self-help books, I realized that Hey friends, and welcome back to Deep Dive. If you're new here, my name is Ali, and this is the weekly podcast where every week I sit down with entrepreneurs, creators, authors, and other inspiring people, and we talk about how they got to where they are and the lessons and strategies that we can learn from them that will help us hopefully live our best lives. What you're about to hear is a conversation between me and Professor Richard Wiseman. Richard is a professor of psychology who's written a bunch of books about the interesting, quirky aspects of positive psychology, and he's published over 100 peer-reviewed academic papers in the field of psychology in interesting topics like paranormal stuff illusions, magic, and interestingly, he's written a whole book about the concept of luck and how we as individuals can become luckier. He also happens to be a member of the Inner Magic Circle, which is one of my items on my bucket list that I'm working on the audition for. And he also happens to have a YouTube channel with over 2.4 million subscribers, just to add to his long list of accolades. This is a pretty eclectic conversation that spans a wide gamut of areas from things like luck and paranormal and like psychology and magic and like all a bunch of really cool stuff. Uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So you have had a very, very kind of quirky career, shall we say. Oh, um... You are the Professor in Public Understanding of Psychology at the University of Hertfordshire. Correct. You've written 12 books. Uh, I think so. Over the last month, published apparently over 100 academic papers yes. in psychology of magic, illusion, deception, luck, self and self-development. Yeah. Um, which is, and I think that's what I kind of, uh, in, in, in the early days when I discovered 59 Seconds and your work, I was like, oh, this guy's really cool. He's like, he's like an academic and he's into magic and he's into personal development. And I was into all of those things as well. So okay. I kind of sort of, Looked at you as being like, oh, this is this is like a really interesting career that I maybe want want at some point. Um, I guess you know one of one of the questions that we we often ask here on here on the podcast is like how how did all this happen? And I guess for you, there's like a lot of kind of background, but I'm I'm, yeah. I'm curious, like how did it all happen? If um, you think about the beginning, like what what were you doing at school? Ma magic magic is of... is really what what kicked it off. So mm. um, I used to go and see my grandfather at the weekends. And one weekend he showed me a magic trick. And in fact, every weekend we went, he showed me the same trick. It's a really, really great trick where you initial a coin, he made it disappear, and it appeared in a box that was sealed with elastic bands. And he said this really, and like everyone who watched magic tricks, I always wanted to know how that was done. And he was super wise, actually, because he said, I'm not gonna tell you the answer. What I will tell you is where the answer is, where the solution is, it's in the local library. And that made me go and read these books in the library. And at the time, I was, I'm not a great reader. I was struggling with reading. I was in sort of uh, special sort of classes for reading and so on. But now I was really motivated. So I read all these books on magic, got completely hooked on it. I thought it was a wonderful thing. And so became fascinated with that, thought that I would become a professional magician, started doing kids shows and um, street magic, not very far from here actually, in Covent Garden. Oh, you were doing the Covent Garden? Yeah, yeah I was in oh, Covent Garden uh, for a little while. Not very long. Yeah. And then I sort of realized that wasn't for me. It's, it is a very 
challenging way of earning a living. Mm. And I'd gone to America, and I'd done some magic there, and and it just it just felt like I didn't really want to be pursuing that as a as a career. So how how old were you around this time? I'd have been seventeen, eighteen, okay. something like that. Okay, right. And I had all these wonderful experiences. So a friend and I, actually a very famous um, neuroscientist, went to America. Uh, I was performing magic over there. We went to Times Square, New York, which was pretty rough then. And there's all these people doing the three card trick. Mm. And I said to my friend, I'll, I'll count all the number of people involved in the gang because it isn't just the person throwing the cards. There's loads yeah. of people involved, spotters and yeah. enforcers and so on. So I counted them. And I think we got to 12 people. And then I realized there were 13 people because while I was counting the 12, the 13th had stolen my bag from between my <laughs> legs. And that got all my props in it. And, and all of my friends' slides for a job talk and so on. And so I went from there to the Magic Castle on the West Coast to perform with no props. And I arrived and I was sitting in a, a restaurant the day before I was supposed to start, pretty much in tears, because I was thinking, my goodness, this is just this big show in front of yeah. all my peers, this amazing place called the Magic Castle, and I've got no props. And this very lovely woman came over, sat down and said, what's the problem? And I explained. And she said, I'm not surprised you're upset. You're focusing on what you can't do. You can't go and give that show tomorrow. You haven't got time to, to build the props and so on. So let's focus on what you can do. What show can you do tomorrow? And it just was like a switch. It just flipped. I thought, I can do this, I can do that, I can do that. And I got on with it and I built a show and went out and did it and it was mm. fine. And it was that simple moment of thinking, oh my goodness, I was thinking about it one way. I, was, I, I got a can't do attitude. And just by flipping and going, yeah. so what, what can we do right now? Yeah. And, and so I got interested in psychology. And, okay. and, I, and, and, and so I, I then, from there, I started to read about psychology. I then did an undergraduate degree in it at UCL, again, not very far from here. At the end of that, just by chance, it was the weirdest thing. I was walking through the cloisters at UCL, bumped into the same friend, actually, the person I've been to, um, uh, uh, to America with. And he said, I've just seen a poster advertising for a PhD position. And you have to remember, this is before email and all this sort of stuff on the internet. Uh, and people put posters up. So I said, what is it? At least someone's looking, uh, it's up in Edinburgh, and they're looking for someone to do a PhD on psychology of deception. And you, you love magic and you're into psychology, this would be perfect. And it was a guy called Professor Robert Morris, who's a parapsychologist interested in the paranormal. Ooh, okay. And he'd got some, some grant money. And so I went up and, and um, uh, saw him, got the position, and so spent four years up in Edinburgh looking at psychics and mediums and so on. And then from there, I went back down to University of Hertfordshire, and that's where I've been ever since, looking Ooh. at all these kind of weird topics. Okay. So that's, that's my, my long-winded way of saying I went from magic to psychology to parapsychology and now do what I do. Interesting. You were performing at the Magic Castle at the age of 18? Yeah. So you must have been very good because that's quite like a prestigious... It's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's quite prestigious. Um, I was okay. Mm. I mean, I, I, I could hold my own as it were and I, I can be mildly amusing when I need to be. Yeah, it was, I went there three times actually and it was, it was great. But it, it was the, the, the weird thing was, it's like all these things, isn't it? It was the meeting with that woman that actually was far more influential yeah. than, than the performing at the, the castle. It's always these weird kind of little quirks that, yeah. that you think, oh my goodness, they put me off in a different direction. Which I think is why I then returned to study the psychology of luck mm. later on, because I just became fascinated with these chance meetings. We like to think we're in charge of our careers, and I don't think we are. I, I think there's, there's so much rolling of the dice uh, with it. Yeah. 
So, I mean, so that was another area that I did want to talk to you about because I often get people approaching me and asking for essentially career career advice in one form or another. They're like, oh, you, you used to be a doctor and then you switched to become this like YouTuber thing. And like, how does that work? And how do you like follow your passions and things? From, from my perspective, it's, you know, I, I guess looking back and connecting the dots, it's very easy to connect the dots and kind of weave, weave a narrative that, oh, I was into, into web design when I was young and then got into magic and then got into performance, got into teaching and that led to this, led to that. But like at the time, it's just a sort of, um, kind of a serendipitous encounter with someone or something, or I don't know, coming across one of your books, or then discovering Darren Brown and be like, "Whoa, this guy!" Like that, or you know, just little things here and there that lead down a certain path. What's your take on this idea of kind of luck as a as a broad? Well, yeah. So the the luck stuff. I, I was at Hearts. Had been at Hearts for ten years. I was interviewing people for somebody else's project. Actually, I'd stepped in. It wasn't my project. Interviewing people about moments, key moments in their lives, and this guy came in and just described himself as really lucky he said oh, I get this chance occurrences they always work out for me and bump into people and increasingly convinced that we are presented with opportunities all the time and it's whether we make the most of them I think it's really easy to think this is my career path you know I'm going to be a medic or I'm going to be a magician or whatever it is and once you lock into that the problem is you then miss opportunities or other ways of thinking and doing and that happened at that moment. You know, I'd, I was interviewing this guy and I thought, luck is a really interesting topic, actually. And psychologists have pretty much ignored it. So I started to do some work on psychology of luck. And, and we ran some newspaper articles saying, you know, if you think you're lucky or unlucky, yeah. contact Richard Wiseman. And there was about a thousand people getting contact and it, and it grew. The media liked it as a topic. And then that became the basis for the, the very first book. I, I never intended to be an author at all. As I, say, I, I struggled to read even. So it just wasn't something that I intended to do. It just kind of came along. So you were, I, I guess, were you trying to publish academic papers in psychology journals exploring yeah, was, the was, idea of luck? Absolutely. I was doing that. and I published quite a lot of papers. Hmm. And then through a guy called Simon Singh, who's an amazing sort of mathematician and public communicator, uh, he introduced me to his agent, Patrick Walsh, who's an incredible agent. And Patrick said, what are you working on? And I actually, at the time, was working mainly on the paranormal. So we put together this book proposal about the paranormal. No publisher wanted to, to, to really put it out. And it was a chance conversation with Patrick. He said, what else are you doing? I said, I'm doing stuff on luck. And he said, we try to make people luckier. I said, oh, yeah, we do that with interventions and so on. And that was the, the, the basis, again, of the, the very first book. Okay, so many questions about the paranormal stuff as well. Before we go down that, so I'll, I'll just put a bookmark on there. You've, uh, in, is it The Luck Factor? The Lucky Factor. Yeah. Luck Factor, yeah. The Luck Factor, yeah. So you've got like four principles mm. um, that people use to become luckier. I wonder if you can kind of elabor elaborate on those, because I'm sure our listeners would be very... So these are the principles, the different ways in which people lucky, which lucky people think and behave. So we have they're open to opportunities, and when those opportunities come along, they make the most of them. And you saw that all the time. They're, they're very flexible. So they've got an end point. They knew they wanted to, I don't know, be successful or, you know, financially uh, well off or whatever it was. But the way they were going to get there, they didn't really know. They, they were looking at the way the wind was blowing and then setting sail to make the most of that. Very flexible um, folks. Second, they tend to trust their intuition. And so when they get that gut feeling, they really do treat it as an alarm bell and take it quite seriously. Third, they're optimists. And so that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. They, they kind of continue in the face of failure and, and so on. And fourth, and I think it's probably the most important principle, uh, they're extremely resilient. So when bad things happen, they could bounce back. Yeah. And so you know, I remember 
I interviewed so hundreds of lucky and unlucky people. One of them was this guy that was in the lucky group, and he came in for two interviews. Between the two interviews, he'd fallen down the stairs and broken his leg. It's the second interview he comes in with his leg in a cast. Yeah. And I say, oh, I bet you don't consider yourself quite so lucky now. And he says this wonderful answer, which still sticks with me. He said, you're kidding. He said, you never know the impact of something like this. He said, sure, it's annoying at the moment. But he said, last time I went into hospital, I fell in love with a nurse there. We were happily married 25 years later. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. He said, don't label it bad luck. You never know what's going to come from this. Yeah. So it's incredibly resilient yeah. sort of attitude. And so those are the four things, the, the opportunism, uh, the uh, intuition, the optimism and the resilience. And, and is that something that people can learn or is it tend to, does it tend to be a sort of, quote, innate trait? In, in well, that's a very good question. So uh, obviously all of us uh, are a mixture of our, our genes and, 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 and nature and nurture, basically. And I'm not very interested in the nature end of things. I'm not very interested in things that can't change or don't change. So I think all of us can make the most of our potential, and that's the bit as a social psychologist that fascinates me. The challenge is how do you do it? How do you do it? And when I looked at these self-help books, I realized that this stuff wasn't evidence-based. People were just making things up. Some of it might be helpful, some of it might not be. And so we started to come up with interventions and test them. And that was the basis of luck factor, which, which, which is these things which actually we know make a difference because we've done the, the studies to yeah. support it. So going a little bit meta on this, like what does it look like to test an intervention on something like luck? Yes. Like if, you're doing, yes. if you're running the experiments. Yes. So I, so I like experiments that, that pose exactly those problems, yeah. which is how do you do that? Um, in our studies, we would take groups of people that didn't consider themselves lucky or unlucky. Okay. We'd ask them to do something. Yeah. And then you monitor that group. Yeah. Your problem is you haven't got a control group. Yeah. So then, you know, it's compared to what, basically? So you can then have another group of people that aren't doing, doing anything. Mm. Problem, th which is good, better, at least. The problem there is we, you don't know that maybe it's the doing of anything that, 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 that kind of helps. So we often have a third group, which is that we say, here's a lucky mascot or a lucky charm, yeah. carry that around. So like placebo almost. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. And that's the sort of way you start to, to, to okay. those interventions. And so what, what kind of interventions are, yeah. We, we did super yeah. simple things, uh, in part because the complicated things didn't work. Mm. So for example, uh, we'd ask people to keep a luck diary. And now this was at the time when positive psychology, which now sort of falls under was was around but it wasn't huge we were, we were doing some work into this so the luck diary the end of each day you write down a sense of gratitude you have for your friends or health or yep. career or whatever it was a gratitude intervention or the best thing that's happened in the last 24 hours or something negative that used to happen that no longer happens okay and what that means is you start to build up a written record, and you do have to write it. Mm. If you just think it, it doesn't work. Mm. You start to build up a written record of how lucky you are, how fortunate you are, mm. how good your life is. And that starts to then change people's self-perception. And that's when you start to see these changes in behavior, changes in perception, and ultimately changes in physical health and well-being and, and financial success and so on. And you can, and, and you can measure all that. 
Well, yeah, I mean, that's what psychologists do. Some of it's ticky boxy stuff. It's yeah. how, how good you feel. Yeah. And some of it is, you know, number of trips to your GP or longevity of relationships or income is much more hard measures. Okay. What sort of kind of numbers of people are we talking in these kind of studies? Well, I mean, those studies are quite old now. Mm. So at the time, we're probably running groups of 50, something like that. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, because I, I remember I did psychology for my third year at Cambridge when we do the intercalated BSc yeah. thing. And there were all sorts of posters on the thing. Would you like to be paid £20 mm. to take part in a thing with a computer game and a yes. thing? And no one quite knows. It's like, I know this is a psychology experiment. So I know, like, you know, things are not quite as they seem. Yes. Uh, but I had a bunch of friends who were like, oh, 20 quid for doing a computer game for an hour? Why not? Like, this is great money for a student. It's, yeah, no, they're, they're <laughs> fun. I mean, I, I like experiments that that are meaningful. I mean, a lot of psychology experiments are a little bit on the dull end. I mean, psychologists are astonishing. They can take something as wonderful as a human being and reduce it to something really dull yeah. really quite quickly. So some of my favourite luck studies was we would invite people to be interviewed, but they, that meant they had to go to a certain room, which meant they had to walk along a certain corridor. And we'd put money on the corridor, <laughs> on the floor yep. of the corridor. Yep. And so the question is, did they spot it? And yep. the lucky people tended to spot it, and the unlucky ones didn't. Uh, as in, lucky as in people who self-identify as lucky? Always self-identify, always a self-perception. Okay, yes. Um, and so by the time they got to the room for the interview, the study was finished. We, yeah. We'd say there is no interview. It was yeah. just whether you spotted the five or ten pound note. Yeah. And so I love these things. We did so many of these, these great little studies. Oh. There was one, uh, I, I, it was some TV show, I think Darren Brown maybe had something to do with it, which was University Bar, where you could sort of like red and blue coins, and like the red coins would give people actual alcohol, and the blue coins would give people placebo alcohol. Oh, yes. And there was no difference in behavior between the two groups. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that Darren did that, but, but yeah, certainly I've, I've done similar stuff. And then yeah. basically you realize alcohol, to a large extent, is a placebo, mm. which is a, a phenomenal. And Darren's great. Darren's fantastic. He, he filmed his first show ever. Uh, I, was, I was part of that first uh, show, and we met way back then, sort of yeah. 20 years ago. Is that like Darren Brown Live? I think it was, might have been even Mind Games all the way yeah. back. Okay. Um, so it's great. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I saw him live uh, about two weeks ago, and he's an astonishing performer. Astonishing. Oh yeah, he's amazing. I've I've seen all of his live shows. It's like yeah, awesome. I actually did discovered his old old school books, Pure Effect and Absolute Magic. I think. Yeah, great. They're which great. were I was just like, well, damn, bloody hell, this stuff is yeah. really good. Just a quick interlude before we continue with the podcast. Now, if you are interested in, for example, building good habits and breaking bad ones, and you haven't yet read Atomic Habits by James Clear, firstly, you've probably been living under a rock because everyone seems to have read or at least bought Atomic Habits by James Clear. Um, but the other thing is that instead of reading the book, you can get a summary of the key ideas from the book by using Shortform, who are very kindly sponsoring this episode. If you haven't heard by now, Shortform is the world's best service that summarizes popular non-fiction books. And on their summaries, it's just way more than book summaries. They've got one-pagers that summarize the key ideas of the book in a single page, but they also have detailed chapter-by-chapter -chapter summaries, which mean that if you don't want to, you don't necessarily have to read the book, although in the case of Atomic Habits, I do still recommend reading the book. They also have interactive exercises in between some of the chapters, so you can really engage with the material yourself. And also, they have this thing called the Shortform Note, which is a essentially where if an author has said something that another author has disagreed with or that is a bit controversial, then they will flag up that, hey, hang on, this is a thing that there's, you know, there's the evidence for this is a little bit shaky, therefore maybe don't take its word for it as gospel truth. Maybe check out this book instead that argues for the opposite. So it's just great for getting a balanced representation of the stuff that authors claim in these sorts of books. There's two main ways that I use short form. The first one is if I get a new book recommendation and I'm not immediately sold on it, then what I'll tend to do is look up the book summary of that on short form and based on whether I like the book summary, then I will decide to buy or not buy or read or not read the book. And secondly, it's also just a great way of revisiting ideas from books I've already read. So for example, I've read Atomic Habits one time, but I've looked at the short form summary for it at least three or four 
times in preparation for videos or for my life or for my book research or various other things. Anyway, if any of that sums up your street and you'd also like to get access to the world's best book summaries, which are more than just book summaries, then head over to shortform.com forward slash deep dive. And with that URL, you will be getting a 20% discount off the annual premium subscription and you'll also be supporting this very podcast. So thank you very much, Shortform, for sponsoring this episode. And let's get back to the show. Lucky journals. Mm. So these things work. work. Yeah, they, they, they yeah. work. They, they change people's self-perception. And one of the things that that does is then change how their friends and colleagues um, uh, behave towards them. Okay. So we forget that we give off a certain you know, self-identity vibe. Yeah. vibe yeah. And that other people reinforce that. Okay. And so we come to convince ourselves that's who we are. Yeah. And, and once you start to change that and other people see you as more successful or lucky, they'll give you more opportunities or they'll talk to you more or whatever. Mm. It's in the same way that our emotions are contagious. You yeah. know, that we all like enjoy being around happy people because it makes yeah. us feel happy. And, and so the lucky people tended to be happier. They had a bigger social network, which meant they got more opportunities. But also when things went wrong, there were people there to help them. Yeah. The unlucky people tended to be social isolates. What direction do you think the causality goes here? Both ways. Okay. Both ways. So people who've had bad stuff happen to them tend to consider themselves to be unlucky. Yeah. But also people who, I guess, at a, I, I guess this creates a vicious cycle of once you start considering yourself to be unlucky, you stop taking opportunities, you stop like generating positive vibes into the world. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, bad things is to some extent subjective. Yeah. You know, and, and so as I say, a bit like the, the breaking the leg story, you know, that, that would to me look like a bad thing. This guy didn't perceive it like that at all. Yeah. So, like, one of the things I, I, I like and don't like about kind of self-help as a thing is that you can always reduce it down to a cliche, you know, <laughs> like, always look on the bright side of life. It's yeah. like, I mean, that's a cliche for a reason. It's like generally good advice. But as, if someone hears the advice in that simplified format, it's very easy to dismiss as, oh, you know, this is, this is BS. Well, so that piece, so always look on the bright side of life. The, the question, what does that actually mean? You know, mm. How do you do that? How do you do it? So with some of our work, we looked at counterfactual thinking. Yeah. So when something bad that you perceive as bad has happened to you, generating it could have been worse mm. counterfactuals yeah. um, actually is a fairly effective way of, of being a bit more resilient or looking for the, the, the silver lining, you know, what, what good things have come out of this, even if they're quite minimal. And that's what I find more interesting. What are the tactics? Because often those cliches... A very broad brush. Yeah, very sort of abstract. Yeah, yeah. And you go, yeah, fine. So, sorry, what do I do tomorrow or yeah. right now? What are the tactics? Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure it's in the, the action is always in the tactics rather than the strategy. That's interesting. So, so the book I'm writing at the moment is, or rather, struggling to write. The... <laughs> Why are you struggling? Why are you struggling? Oh, okay, interesting. So we'll get into that tangent, and then, and then I'll come okay. back to the thing tactics. Yeah, I actually had a, a call with my with one of our external editors yesterday, and it turned into more of a therapy session. <laughs> I feel like any time I speak to my agent or the editor, it becomes therapy session. Basically, I, I I think it's tied up in 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 my mind the the bar is too high. So if I'm writing an email newsletter, I've been doing this every week for four years. Oh. It's chill. I'll write down whatever the hell I feel like. Oh, I discovered this cool new tip in yeah, Richard's yeah. book, green plant, blah, 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 bang. It sends out, goes out to people. People reply being like, this was a really good tip. Thank you. If I'm making a YouTube video in the early days of my channel, I'd hit record on the camera, have a rough like, oh, I want to say these four things about like the four different types of luck. Let me just talk about it. But then when it comes to the book, it's like, it feels like a big deal. It's like, hmm. and it's like when I sit down to write, I'm like, oh shit, I'm I'm like Mark Twain and doing writing my magnum opus <laughs> or like whatever. And it's all it's all it's all just like a really kind of uh, pressurized way to think of writing. And what 
Rachel, our editor, was saying was that like you just gotta you just gotta lower, lower the stakes. It's all good. It's your shitty first draft. Like no one cares. Does that resonate at all? Yeah, in, in quite a few ways. Are you comfortable saying what your book is about? Or is it all oh, super absolutely. secret? No, 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 it's all good. Uh, it's a sort of a, a practical guide to sustainable productivity. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I love the fact that you're struggling to write a book on productivity. I, I know. Think <laughs> yeah, there's lots, lots of meta examples in there. <laughs> so, so all I can tell you is, yeah. is what I've done for, for 12 books, which is that, and probably why I won't do any more because it's, it, I find it quite a difficult thing to do. I, I've got my idea. I've got my outline, a chapter by chapter outline. Yeah. I've got content that's going to go in there. Yeah. And I give myself two months. Yeah. To write eighty thousand words. Oh, okay. And that that you can chunk that down, and and it's a lot of words a day. Yeah. And my goal is to get that those words out. It does not matter about the quality. Nice. That is my first goal. Okay. I fail only if I don't produce eighty thousand words in two months. Okay. Everything takes goes onto the back burner. Yeah. Everything yep. until you've done whatever it is, one and a half thousand words that day. Yeah. So I get up. Uh, I have breakfast, and until I've done one and a half thousand words, nothing, nothing else gets done. Ooh, this is nice. <laughs> and and then I start the day with other emails or whatever else. Yeah. I think. And uh, after you've written the first draft, that first 80,000, boy, is it easy. Mm. Boy, is it easy, because now you're editing. You've got something to work with. You know the bits that didn't work, yeah. and you've worked through them really, really quickly. Yeah. And you go back and you know, that bit didn't work, or now I can shift this bit to here. But if you haven't got that, if you haven't got that that paint on the canvas, mm. it's a blank canvas, and that's a bit scary. Yeah. So all I would, I, all I've ever done is I get up, I write, I can only write between about nine o'clock and around about half past eleven in the mm. morning. Okay. And that's my one and a half thousand words, and nothing gets in the way of doing that. Okay, that's that's sick. I'm gonna I'm gonna try that. <laughs> so I think so I um so I've 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 had the deal for about a year now, and mm-hmm. in it sort of this time last year, I was like, you know what, I can type pretty fast. Two thousand words a day. How hard can that be? My book is eighty thousand words. Two months, bang it out. And I got to like day three. I had six six thousand words in, and I was like, hmm, I don't have an outline. <laughs> it's ah. really hard to do without an outline. <laughs> so you, you haven't yeah. got you haven't got a chapter by chapter. Uh, so I do now, and that's that's right. the thing that's taken the last twelve months. Right. And whenever my mum asks me how's the book going, I'm like making slow progress, but it it, it doesn't feel tangible because there's you know as, as I'm sure you figured out, with me, it seems to be like there's a lot of I know what I want to say, but it's yeah. like the structure and the packaging and the central metaphor I'm using and all of these other yes. bits is the bit that takes a lot of work to get the flywheel going but doesn't translate into words on a page Am it I needs wrong? to yeah. i mean it needs yeah. to I, I, I think so I, I have got that, that structure and i've got pretty much a structure for every thousand words i know the point i want to make in yeah. a thousand words and sometimes i'll sit down and go you know what? i haven't got the evidence i don't know the studies mm. in which case i just write and, and i just like pretend i do yeah. and i've got a mental marker i don't know those ones i need to go back to that yes. but you need those those eighty thousand, in my opinion before you then go back and start to to work on it yeah but it's like it's you know you work so hard on the first thousand and it's the perfect first thousand mm. and then you realize it all needs to be changed because you change yeah. your conclusions later on. Yeah. So that was a waste of time. I'm very economical in in the way I do nice. these things. So you've written twelve books over the last like since two thousand and four, is it? Uh, or, uh, probably a bit earlier than that, about two thousand, yeah. I think, is luck yeah. factor. Yeah, always the same way. So once yeah. I got the eighty thousand, then I switch to day on day off. Okay. So I go back and edit day, and then I take a day off, mm. and normally do other things. Then back on it again. I, do, I go day on day off for about two months, and after that, the book's pretty much done. So you've written twelve now. Why? Why don't you want to write more? Because it's a quite as you might find out, it's quite a lonely old 
process. Mm. You're just there in front of your computer, occasionally sending emails or talking to people. Mm. But I've done it quite a lot. Yeah. I've done it quite Does a it lot. It loses the novelty after a 12. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then you have to go out and publicize them and, and, yeah. and so on. So if I, if I get a great idea, I'll probably go with it. Um, but and, and actually, I'm, I'm, you know, the last book I did was with David Copperfield about the history of magic, and that, that was great that's to work. Cool. With. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's something very passionate about, and you're working with, you know, sort of legendary magician, yeah. a very different type of book. I'd never done a coffee table book before, so that was fun. And right now, I've just finished one on on why psychology matters, and that's for psychologists and psychology students. It's not really a book for the general public. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm doing fun things, but the idea of eighty thousand words doesn't thrill me yeah. anymore. How do you think about your career? Like, like, I don't. As a broad. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I've always just thought, am I having a good time? Okay. Is it interesting? Do I want to get out of bed in the morning? And if the answer is yes, 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 you're doing okay. Okay. I don't. I've never had an end point. I really haven't. I've just like, yes, yeah, it's fun. This is all right. So what, one of the, you know, as, as, as you know, one of the classic things in the self-help literature is this idea of setting a destination, setting mm. a goal, manifesting, knowing what you want out of life, and then doing the things to get there. Yeah. How does that vibe with your experience <laughs> and your research? Well, it doesn't. I mean, the, the, for me, the goal is, is it interesting? You know, am I, am I engaged with this? And, and if I am, then life is good. And there's been times when I've been paid you know, some money to do something I'm not particularly in a project I'm not particularly interested in. And boy, that's that's hard. That's work. Mm. Everything else is is just playing, really. So I, I don't have this notion of, um, oh, I need to be sort of financially successful or, or, or whatever, or famous. I never wanted to be a writer. Yeah. That wouldn't, wouldn't have been on my horizon at all. You know, I enjoy giving talks. I enjoy the live stuff. Uh, one day maybe I'll wake up and I won't enjoy it, in which case I'll stop doing it. But no, just you know, I just think have an interesting life, you know, as and, and and do good things. You know, if it, don't harm people, as long as you're doing stuff which you think makes the world a better place. Yeah, then that'll probably you know fuel you. I like that this idea of I will I'll I'll continue to do it for as long as it's interesting. Yeah, kind of thing. I think it's the same with me with anything is is that the moment I cease to find it interesting. Yep. It's, it's like the paranormal or, or, or the magic trick. If I showed you a magic trick and you didn't know how it's done, God, it's like a, a stone in your shoe, mm. as, as a magician once said. You really want to know. And, and, and you'll spend time trying to figure it out and annoy you if you can't and ask questions and yeah. so on. The moment you find out the solution, boom, it's gone. Yep. No interest to anyone at all. It's why magicians hold their secrets. Mm. Because without that, magic tricks aren't particularly interesting. Same as the paranormal. Ghosts, you know, if I say, oh, I think this place is haunted, that's kind of interesting and mysterious. The moment we find out it's dodgy air conditioning or whatever it is, yeah. boom, it's gone. Yeah. So I, I just think, find mystery, find curiosity, find interest. If, if you're the sort of person, that's, that's what's worked for me. Yeah. If someone in their early 20s was, was saying to you that, you know, Richard, you've had a, a very successful, illustrious career, <laughs> looking at your, your accolades, you're one of the one, 100 people in Britain that makes Britain a good place to live. Allegedly. Uh, allegedly. Yes. Yeah, yeah but the other 99 are, uh, but boy, they're terrible. <laughs> what would you say is this balance between do what you find interesting, do what you like kind of vibes versus, but I need to make money to make ends meet? Well, that's the thing. I, I think know your passion. And so the little test I always have is you're on a desert island, uh, you're allowed four or five books, but they're only about one topic. What's the topic? Mm. And people go, oh, it's the, well, that's your passion, probably. Mm. Now, find a way of making enough money to, to get by 
with that topic and you probably got the recipe for happiness enough money enough money to get by okay and and because i mean i i know quite a few very wealthy people yeah. and often they're not the happiest people in the world once once you get to the top of something you've got to keep yourself there. there's a lot of pressure on and and so on so yeah you know you, you want to be comfortable but i i i think it's a it's a false god to to kind of go oh, i want to be a multimillionaire or or whatever yeah for uh, me it's far more interesting to have a, a good life in that in that sense how how do you define a good life an interesting life one where you get up in the bed in the morning and and you think yeah i'm actually interested in what i'm doing yeah. today or you've got people around you that share your viewpoint and you can work with them and that you're doing some good in the world you know when i wrote luck factor and i still get emails from people that say it's it changed everything for me i still get emails from clinicians who say when people are on the slippery slope to depression before they become depressed um they'll think themselves unlucky yeah and that book catches them early mm. and it's much easier to change their, their way of thinking that's good that's good. That's not. That's, that's pretty solid. Just yeah. making a, a, a little tiny little contribution. Yeah. Yeah. I think those things is, is what, what unwraps it for me. I was, I was filming a video. I think like a couple of days ago. I was doing like a little Q and A, and someone in the audience asked, "When do you plan to retire?" And I was like, "Hmm." And I was kind of thinking, like, what does retire even mean? There was some definition I came across on Twitter, which is that retirement is when you are not doing something today for the promise of a reward tomorrow. Uh, generally, a monetary reward. Yeah, monetary tomorrow. reward. Yes. And so how, how, do, how do you get to that point? Number one, you can make loads of money. Mm -hmm. Cool. Now you're retired because you don't then have to quit work. Number two, you can have a very, very, very ascetic lifestyle and just not spend any money because mm -hmm. now a baseline yeah. level of money will make you retired. Or number three, you can wake up every morning and be genuinely excited about the things that you're doing so that you're doing them for their own sake rather than for the monetary reward that they may yes. or may not generate. And I think for me, what I'm trying to do is like, these seem like three decent definitions. I want to do a combination of all three. <laughs> so yes. let's kind of do the things that are, that I find energizing and to make those things help people in some way and then figure out a way to monetize that. And some, we have some well, kind of recipe. Well, for, I mean, you're, you're a young man. What a curious question though, to ask you when you intend to retire? What, what, what motivated that question, do you think? I think I am, I'm very open about how much money this business makes on the internet. Oh, I see. <laughs> and so okay. people be like, oh, okay, 5 million revenue this year, kind of, kind of stuff, be like, right. and reverse engineer, and then don't know the difference between business finances and personal finances, yes. assume I'm like 20 times wealthier than I actually am, personally, and therefore think, oh, if you, th uh, th this thing of once I have X amount of money in the bank, then I will stop working, being a thing, you're, you're shaking your head. I think it's <laughs> yeah. crazy. Unless you hate what you do, yeah, or, or it's so incredibly stressful, it's it's basically killing you. Mm. And friends of mine who used to work in the city were like that. You know, they they earned a vast amount of money, but boy, I wouldn't change places for them. They, they, they had no life, and and actually most of them were quite ill early on because of the stress and and, yeah. and so on. So if you enjoy what you're doing, if you enjoy making the podcasts yeah. and so on, that's great. <laughs> you know, yes, you want to be making some money from it, but I suspect you know if you've got enough money in the bank to retire, there'd be no point in retiring because you're enjoying. Yeah, doing exactly. What, you're just doing, doing, doing what, <laughs> yeah. You'd just be doing it for free after that, you know. Yeah. So yeah, what's, I yeah. find that a slightly strange question. There was, and, and and there are a bunch of looking into this at one point. You know, a bunch of studies that show that post-retirement people's risk of heart disease just like five yes. times higher, or, yeah. or whatever the, the, the figures are. Because there's a loss of kind of having something to do yeah. is like profoundly strange. <laughs> yes. Oh. I, was, I was watching a TV show, I think, a couple of nights ago. And there was a, a guy who's exactly that. He's an engineer and he'd retired. And he suddenly found he got nothing to do at all. Mm. So he bought a very old um, rundown classic car and decided to 
uh, sort of do it up. Mm. And he said that it's incredibly challenging because you have to know exactly what you're doing with engines and upholstery and, and stuff. He said he kept him alive. He said now he's got something to get up for in the morning. Yeah. I was doing. I just think you you need that. You absolutely need it. Yeah. Yeah, so like over the last couple of years, as you know, just for a, a, a bit of background, I did six years of med school. I did my psychology fake degree, um, mm. got an MA out of that because Cambridge fake yeah. degrees and all, and all that jazz. And then practice as a doctor for two years. And then I took a break in 2020 intending to travel the world, but mm. then pandemic happened. And it was around that time that this YouTube channel really started to take off. And I was like, oh, okay, how do I figure out what I want to do with my life? And one strategy I found helpful was the idea of what what would you like written on your gravestone? Yeah. You know, if you imagine, hopefully many years in the future. And for me, I, I, th- I thought about this a bit and realized that the three things I care about are some combination of good father, good good husband, and inspirational teacher. Hmm. And then I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And I kind of connected the dots backwards. I was like, all of them, like a huge amount of the meaningful moments of my life have been when I've been teaching other people something, hmm. whether it was tutoring maths when I was like a teenager or getting people into med school when I wasn't, when I was in med school or like teaching medical students or any, of th- it was all related to teaching. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So it's like, the thing I care about is just actually being able to kind of learn cool stuff and then teach it to people. And that's actually a fairly cheap thing to be able to do. Yeah. Um, Cause internet and like writing and, and things. And so now what I spend my time doing most days is just reading, writing and teaching in one form or another or learning from people through the podcast or making videos. And it's genuinely like amazing and energizing and fun. But, and the reason I say this is one thing I worry about is what will I be doing when I'm 50? Will I still be one of those, <laughs> hey guys, welcome back to the channel. <laughs> like, and I feel like, uh, yeah, any, any, any advice for that particular conundrum? Well, I'm 55 now. So, um, so I stopped doing the YouTube stuff. We did Quickology, very early adopters of it, um, made loads of stuff in the bets videos and, and so on. And we've had uh, 500 million views on it, which, which blows me away. I find that incredible. I stopped doing it, I think because I thought I got nothing else to say mm. with it. And it was exactly that. You didn't want to be the sort of, you know, 55-year-old guy <laughs> sort of <laughs> cranking these things out. Yeah. So I occasionally post on the channel, but they're, they're, they're just very small little videos that I find interesting. So I, I think you just, you, you just mature, you just move on, you become something else. You know, it, it's, people change. That's what's interesting about people. Imagine watching a drama when no one changed and nothing happened. Yep. It would be the dullest thing in the world. Uh, what will become, what's interesting about all of our lives is that you will, not mature, but you'll, you'll become a different person as you age. And, yeah. and, and then you'll, the skill set you've got now, you'll use in a different way, mm. I think. I certainly would worry about it. Yeah. I mean, in fact, <laughs> is we'll get knocked over by a bus tomorrow. So I wouldn't yeah, no, go too much into the future. <laughs> so it's interesting what you say about teaching. I have a similar approach. What I find interesting is expanding people's minds, giving, giving people an expansive mindset. I think we all tend to, to, to sort of lock ourselves away in, in a room, in a, in a sense, mentally, and just, just letting people know there's other things they could do, there's other ways of seeing the world, there's mm. interesting stuff out there. I, I find that quite energizing. And because sometimes, you know, we forget, you know, that there's, just, there's not just one way of looking at the world, there's many, many different ways. So I find that. That kind of interesting thing mm. to be doing. The, the yeah. gravestone thing is interesting. It's, it's a variant on the eulogy in psychology intervention, oh, which is yeah. you imagine, which is in '59, you, that you imagine uh, your friend is going to stand up at your funeral and they're going to read out a eulogy, and you actually write the eulogy for them. You, you actually, the, end, the intervention is you go right. This could be ten years' time. This is what they're going to say about me. Then you look at it and go, well, given what you're doing, is that going to be true? And it's quite an interesting way of of pushing yourself into the future 
and thinking, will they actually be saying the things that I want them to be saying? What result do you find that intervention has? It, it's slightly a goal-setting one, but also it's more than that. I think it's exactly as you say. Uh, do I want my friend to say, uh, oh, he was a wonderful husband? Okay, what's the evidence? What evidence are they going to present for that? Did this and this and this? Well, is that true? Is, uh, is that the direction you're heading in? Yeah. Or are you so career-focused you're forgetting about your relationships? Yeah. So I think it gives people quite a rounded view of themselves because you just tend to look at both personal and professional yeah. uh, stuff. Nice. Yeah, I think, so I didn't, I didn't realise that was like a legit inter- intervention. I, I, need, I need to follow up on the, on, on the evidence for that, definitely. Because I think this is, this is some of the stuff I want to put in, in my book, where the final chapter is a chapter about purpose. And initially when I started writing the thing, Chapter one was going to be about purpose because it was like, oh, it's a book about productivity. Uh-huh. Why bother driving in a direction if you don't know what direction you're driving in and so on and so on. And I kind of went into the rabbit hole. I was like, it's, it's really hard to answer the question of purpose as like a 26-year-old at the time trying to be like, hey, here's how you yes. figure out what to do in life. Yes. And so now we're like, we'll put the purpose thing, purpose thing at the end. Obviously, no one's actually genuinely figured it out. But things like eulogy, gravestone, this, this sort of stuff mm. uh, does help in, in a way just uh, r- rather than being as a, de- a destination to be fixated on. I think more like being a barometer of am I currently going in the direction that, I, that this thing says that I want to be going in? Yeah, I think so. I mean, with the, I think it's one of the, you know, the seven highly effective habits thing. I think mm. one of them, uh, I've never read the book, actually. No, I think, well, well, I think uh, one of them definitely start with the end in mind, yeah, which, with is, the end, yeah. which is great, yeah. which is great. I think the other one is know what you want to say before you say it. Mm. And that's with, with, in terms of writing or speaking, that's a really helpful tip to think, hold on a second. What do I want to say? If I don't know what I want yeah. to say, I've got no chance of saying it. <laughs> I, mean, I might get lucky, but I, I doubt it. Yeah. So I think in terms of the, the book writing, it's going right. In this thousand words, what point do I want to make? Yeah. If I don't know, there's no point in trying to write those thousand words. Yes. Like so, <laughs> so maybe it's worth just sort of taking a breath and going, right, what is the point that I'm trying to make? Yeah, so this is kind of my, my exact process while writing. I, f- I found that when I write in a blank note on Apple Notes, that's mm. when the words words flow. So, so Because when it's in a Google Doc, then it feels too high pressure. Yeah. And I constantly come back to whenever I'm stuck, I'm just like, go back to what I'm actually trying to say. And then I write down what's on my mind. And I'm like, oh, that's actually not bad. Yes. <laughs> but there's, because there's something about like the writing that sort of, it's, as you, as you get into the weeds of it, it's, uh, you kind of miss the forest from the trees and yes. uh, forget, oh, oh, actually, I'm you know, trying to say. Maybe get a, 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 a friend to interview you. If a friend interviewed you about these topics yeah. and then you just took that transcript, what you said, your answers, yeah. that might be a good starting place. That's a good idea. Because you're obviously very verbal. You're always very happy to talk about yeah. these things. And so if the block is sitting there in front of a computer screen, yeah. then just getting someone to interview you and then starting with that as your transcript that might, the, might the, be interesting. That's, that's a good... Because I, I do find when I hit record on a camera or on a podcast, I'll just say stuff. Yes, that's one. And that's just one. not worry about it at exactly. all. Exactly. Whereas writing... Yes. Um, it's, it's interesting you went with Apple Notes or whatever. I'm very old school. I, I love Post-its. Okay. I, I really like writing. And, and so all my stuff is always ideas. I, I, an interesting idea, bump, post it on the wall, and then I rearrange them. It's something about the physicality of yeah, it that's nice. that I really like. So that was one of the things my editor suggested yesterday, because I, I read everything on Kindle or Audible. Audible oh, right, at like okay. three times speed, Kindle at like what is yeah, highlighting yeah. all that. And she was like, try handwriting in a journal, morning yes. pages every morning for three pages, and try actually reading physical books slowly, because there's something about the physicality of that that, yes. that helps creativity flourish in a way that like, a computer screen doesn't necessarily. Yeah. 
And I also think, for me, I mean, I don't know what works for me, but sometimes I think, right, imagine I have to give a talk about this yep. tomorrow. Yep. So I've only got five hours to get this thing. What would I say in that talk? Yes. And I do the PowerPoint slides very yep. quickly. Boom, 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 boom. Right, that's what I point to. I'm like, well, that's your chapter. Yeah. But it's, it's when you see the whites of people. I think with writing, what you can sometimes do is it feels very distant and you sort of sit there and write thing. But when you give a talk, you see the whites of their eyes yeah. and you go, hmm, this better be interesting because yeah. otherwise people are going to be drifting off. Um, I think it it, it, it it focuses the mind, shall yeah. we say. How do you feel about affirmations? I'm not a big fan. Okay. Uh, there's some research showing that if you've got low self-esteem and you do affirmations, it makes it worse because you think, well, I don't even trust myself. So uh, if yeah. I say these <laughs> terrible things, or good things about myself, I'm probably lying. I, 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 I don't go for the idea of standing in front of the mirror and saying I'm a good person yeah. or whatever. Find the evidence. You know, just, just if you think... It, you know, if you want to be a kind person, do go and do kind things, mm. and and you 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 become that that person, not by standing in front of a mirror and saying I am a good person. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not huge. Yeah, I I, I guess it's sort of I guess the, the the other side of the coin to sort of the the luck journal thing, where with an affirmation it's like you haven't done the thing, but you're telling yourself you've done the thing, or you're going to do the thing. Whereas luck journal is like, in in what ways was I kind today? It's, it's really yeah. concrete. It's evidence based. Yeah. The Carnegie, I mean, I love Dale Carnegie, who wrote that after Win Friends and Influence People, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. Two of the greatest self-help books yeah. ever. Slightly dated now, but, but still amazing. So he's got this great journaling method, which was kind of the opposite, which was, the journal was called Daft or Silly Things I've Done Today. And he'd write down one of the things he really regretted. Hmm. And so he, oh, I wish I hadn't sort of snapped at that person, or I wish I hadn't made this decision. And then what you're gonna do in the future to prevent that happening, so he did it as a sort of learning thing where, where he, instead of running away from a mistake, he really would embrace it as a learning opportunity. And I thought that was nice as, as, as well. That's, that's nice. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's a fun thing. Yeah, that, I, I guess that speaks to, everyone knows the cliche, treat failure as a learning opportunity. Mm. But very few people do the tactic. It, it, exactly, the tactic. It, yeah. It's the tactic. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, fine. Sorry, how do I do that? Yeah. Well, here's the answer. It's a private thing. You can just write anything you want. No one's going to look at it. But then just write what you're going to do to stop that happening in the future. It's a lovely idea. Yeah. And it's, it's buried because he's, you know, his books are now quite old and people mm. aren't looking at them. But it's a lovely, lovely thought. His books are amazing. The reason why they're amazing, in part, is because he didn't write How to Win Friends and Influence People immediately. He went on a speaking tour for about a decade and, and learned how to tell those stories and the book, the transcripts of those talks. Mm. And that's why they're such an easy read and so engaging. Because when you talk, it's different to writing. Yeah. So different. Yeah. It's almost like a stand-up comic kind of perfecting their set before doing the Netflix show. That's and right. Before. One of the things, I think it's in Rip It Up, you talk about the as-if principle. Oh, yes. Can you elaborate on the as-if principle, please? Uh, so the as-if principle is a very old idea in psychology. It goes back to William James. It's this notion that we think that our thoughts and emotions create our behavior, which they almost certainly do. Mm. So if you feel happy, you smile. Mm. But there's a kind of back channel, which is that if you force yourself to carry out the associated behavior, influences your thoughts and emotions, i.e. you force your face into a smile and you feel happier. And that's, that is a, a William James notion. Uh, I think he refers to it as the as if principle. I'm not quite certain now. Mm. Um, in other words, you behave as if, and then that creates the, the thoughts and emotions. I think when I was getting into, I, I think I, I came across this concept 
when I like around the time where I discovered Fifty Nine Seconds, I, I, I can't remember if you quite mentioned it in in that or not. Like, it might be in there. Yeah, it's sort of thing which I would have given a passing. Yeah, and like uh, a bit of a passing comment. Like we yeah. we we you know arguably we don't smile because we're happy. We're happy because we smile yeah. or, or was to that effect. And then when I studied psychology, is you know this sort of theories of emotion and there's some stuff about like oh this is difficult to replicate and like doesn't people know if it's entirely legit. But since like 2015, I haven't really thought about this very much. Um, until we, until we were doing research for the mm. podcast, I was like, oh, this relates to that thing that I thought was a bit controversial in psychology, where some people say it's a thing, some people say it's not a thing. What's the where, where does the jury stand at the moment? Uh, I don't know the the, the replica. I think some of the, the work on I want the the facial feedback hypothesis, this notion that you force your face uh, into an expression and feel that emotion. I think some of that has proven difficult to replicate. The book Rip It Up takes a much broader approach. Mm. And, and so it's looking at persuasion and motivation and all sorts of things. My understanding is that at its core, there is still a phenomena there to, yeah. to, to be explained and, and, yeah. and to be used. But the replication issue has hit you know, all over. Bizarrely, of course, motivated by parapsychology. So, yeah, the um, and I, I have a, a tiny, tiny role to play in, in all of this. <laughs> yeah. uh, so a colleague of mine, Daryl Bem, as a parapsychologist, so believes in paranormally stuff. Daryl did some studies which showed that apparently people could see into the future. I tried to replicate those studies and couldn't replicate them and couldn't get the, the null replications published. Okay, yeah. Because journals don't like publishing, or yeah. didn't then, null replications. Eventually got it published. Mm. Then other people started to look at Daryl's work mm. and go, hold on a second, there's a few statistical and methodological issues here. Yeah which was true, and other people then went, yeah, hold on a minute, though, they're all over psychology as well, so he's got a problem, so psychology. Mm. And the way you get rid of those problems is to pre-register your study to say in advance what you're going to do, what analyses you're going to use, and when you do that uh, in mainstream psychology, you suddenly find out a lot of your effects drop away, mm. that they were due to what's called questionable research practices. So this whole current kind of focus on the need for application and pre-registration actually dates back to parapsychology. So it's quite a nice little, ah. little bit on that. I, I, I was very intrigued by the whole sort of magic deception and suddenly going into like par paranormal yes. stuff. Is there anything there in the paranormal stuff? Like, I, well, yeah. depends what you mean by anything. <laughs> yeah. I, again, it's that thing I just thought, you know what, that sounds like an interesting yeah, thing to do for four really years. really cool, yeah. Yeah, so, so I'll go and do that. There's something there. People, yeah. We know that people have weird experiences. Yeah. They see what they think are ghosts. They go to a psychic who seems to be able to predict their future or knows all about them or whatever. Mm. The experience is totally genuine. Of course, there are some people that think they are genuinely paranormal, yeah. and I'm not one of them. I'm pretty skeptical okay. about such stuff. What interests me is not only what does explain those experiences, mm. but more importantly, what do you learn along the way? Mm. So if you go back to 1920s, for example, and Hans Berger, who's a German uh, scientist, mm. who has a telepathic experience, yeah. then goes, my goodness, I need to build a machine to measure brain waves leaving uh, the, the, the skull. Incredibly hard thing to do because brains are pretty isolated from the outside world. But he eventually comes up with a machine that can measure brain waves in order to see them leaving the skull mm. as evidence of telepathy. Yep. Of course, he gets no evidence of telepathy, yep. but invents the EEG machine. Yep. And, and so that's what I'm interested in. It's not only what explains his experiences, what do you learn along the way? And, yeah. and, and what are the spin-offs? Like, you know, going to the moon. You know, going to the moon is one thing, but there's a lot of technological spin-offs along the way. Yeah. 
uh, like I think uh, one of your recent books about like kind of different lessons for success and mindset and things from that we can learn from the moon. Yes, I, I love that. Yeah, that was that was a fun book to do because I got to speak to the mission controllers yeah. who put you know man on the moon, which was phenomenal. Yeah, and they were a great group. Again, it came about through a chance conversation. I was talking to a comedian friend of mine, Helen Keane, who's into space stuff mm. about Apollo missions. And she was talking about the technological spin-offs. And I said, what about the psychological ones? Who's looked at the mindset mm. that put a person on the moon? Yeah. And she said, I don't think anyone has, but you need to speak to the mission controllers. I said, how would I get in touch with them? She yeah. said, you'd speak to my friend Craig, who at the time was a welder from Wales. Okay. And he's just a complete space nut. He loves space and Apollo. Yeah. And he's befriended them all. And so Craig introduced me to this incredible group of uh, people. Yeah. And they were really young at the time. Mm. So Mission Control, when they started that, that work in the early 60s, average age in Mission Control, 21. Okay. Even when uh, Armstrong walks on the moon, average age, 28. Yep. Phenomenal. First in their families to go to college. Yep from really modest backgrounds. And so I got to interview them about the, the sort of psychology of success in that room. Yeah. Great. So what, what were the kind of broad principles from that? That All sorts of things. Uh, one is boy and openness to mistakes. They celebrated every mistake along that way. And the only way you lost your job in mission control was when you covered up a mistake. Oh, okay. That was every, every learning, because they only had seven or eight years to, yeah. to do it. Something that was actually considered impossible. I mean, uh, pretty much. The other was self-belief. Jerry Bostick, who's, who's one of the most famous ones that I interviewed, I asked him, what's the link between age and what you accomplished? And he said, you know, we were so young, we didn't know it couldn't be done. Mm. And, and he said, so we all believed that it could be. And he said, we got on and did it. He said, well, if we realised what was in front of us, we'd never even bothered in the first place. Yeah. So that was a kind of interesting learning. And, and so I, I, all these things, they are also, when I spoke to them all, they are incredibly conscientious they are incredibly reliable you just think yeah i would put my life in your hands because that's what the astronauts were doing mm. there was an, an enormous sense of trust yeah. there which was the uh, first time i encountered that actually how did, how was, did that come across when you were there was a them? straightness there yeah. was a straightness they never over egged the pudding you remember this was the group that accomplished the impossible and you'd say so what was your role? And they'd all say, oh, I didn't do so much. Really, it's everyone else that, that did it. They were quite humble and they could have gone, yeah, I was the person that, that did this. Yeah. Spoke to Steve Bales, who famously made a decision within about 15 seconds that could have gone either way when they're, they're going to the moon. He's incredibly humble. And, and, and you think, I really like you. Mm. And also I would trust you in an emergency yeah. because you're not going to be there going, I'm the one that's going to save the day. Yeah. You're just very grounded and very straightforward. It was interesting. It felt like a different type of success. I think in a, in a few of your books, you've touched on sort of likability and trust. Again, if we're, if we're thinking about principles and, and tactics, what are the things that, that we can apply in terms of how does one become more likable other than by reading Carnegie? <laughs> well, read, read Carnegie, I, I think is the best thing. I, I think, well, first of all, don't fake it. Hmm. So Carnegie's got this great phrase, which is you get more people to like you by becoming genuinely interested in, other, in others than getting them to becoming interested in you. And, and people are fascinating. You've got something to learn from everyone you meet. So hmm. develop that genuine interest, yeah. I think. I don't think you can fake likability or at least you can but maybe not for very long mm. and I think I was thinking about this 
yesterday actually I was thinking when you go to a website it's a bit like meeting another person mm. and you think is that website do I trust that website is it a likable website does it help me in uh, what achieve mm. what I'm trying to do is it straightforward I think all the attributes that we decide about humans we're actually applying to websites <laughs> as, right. as, as well yeah and we have these websites we visit again and again, yeah. like the news, and they become like an old friend that's telling us stuff. And I suppose trust is interesting. It's a bit like sort of blowing up the balloon, isn't it? That over time you trust somebody, but it only takes one moment of them lying to you, and that just vanishes. Mm. So it's this thing which is quite hard to, to get, a bit like sort of reputation. Yeah. But it, it matters. It right. really matters. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things that compounds over time. Well, one thing on, on Carnegie's point about, you know, if you want to be likable, then be very interested, become very interested in mm. other people. I think I really took that to heart when I first read the book. I think around the age of 15 or something. I was like, yeah, this is sick. Uh, this is great stuff. And then there was a bit of a sort of counter narrative against that in some blog posts saying that, yeah, but if you want to, quote, get ahead in the world, if you want to achieve success, like you can't just become very interested in your boss. You have to actually offer something of value um, for that exchange to become equitable rather than like for for example, if a if a, an employee went to their boss and asked them loads of questions, was genuinely interested in the boss, there's a level of like the the power dynamic at play doesn't necessarily tie oh, into that. Any any thoughts on that? I'm not saying I have thoughts on that. I mean, I think it is hard when you've got a status difference mm. like that because one person's always going to be suspicious of the other. But I think if it's genuine. You know, if you're genuinely interested in your boss and their life and what they're thinking, and, and, and I mean, we're all human. We're all got thoughts and worries and concerns mm. and so on. So I think I, I, I can still see it working, but I, I, I do see the issue. I saw an interesting thing the other day. This was probably about a month ago about mask wearing. Okay. I went to a shop, and only about half the people were wearing masks. And of course, at the, the, the time, there was all this pressure on to wear masks. What this shop assistant did, the person at the tills did, was very interesting. I'd got a mask on. And when I paid for something, they said in a very loud voice, it's whatever how much it was, and thank you very much for wearing a mask. Mm. I turned around and several people who hadn't got masks were putting them on. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. That it actually rewarded the positive person, yeah. not, not punished the other ones. And I thought, I don't know that salesperson. I bet they're quite likable because they've they've got into somebody else's head and figured out a way of doing things that isn't confrontational and isn't challenging. Mm. It's just a way of of just thinking about it. Mm. And collaboration, I think, is incredibly important. The lucky people were always looking for the win-win, you know, and, 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 and the Apollo mission controllers. You know, they collaborated. This was... They always said they didn't want an ego in the room. If you've got an egotist in the room, that was a disaster. Yeah. You wanted a group of people that wanted to achieve something, yep. not be somebody. And collaboration nice. was absolutely key to it. Coming back to the luck thing slightly, one of the, I think one of the principles in the luck factor is, is this idea that lucky people tend to expect good fortune. And then I think in Rip It Up, you, you, you mentioned the idea of self-talk. Like, I feel really enthusiastic. I feel especially productive. I feel like my life is within my control. And I was wondering, how does that relate to the sort of anti-manifestation, anti-affirmation kind of stuff? I suppose... Because it's like yeah. this idea of positive self-talk and to what extent is that actually useful or... It depends on individuals. What I said before mm. was that for, for me personally, it's not a great thing. Yeah. If people... It's like all these things. Yeah. You know, if, if, if you find it useful, then do it. Yeah. And if you don't, stop doing it. 
you know, we're all different, yeah. and and these books give general kind of advice. Yeah. So you know, some things will work for you, some things don't. For me, the self affirmation thing doesn't work. I gave a talk two days ago and yesterday. I'll give one on Monday as well. Mm. I don't stand in the wings going, I am a good speaker. Yeah. I am a good person. Yeah. It doesn't work. What I do do is a trick that um, some Vegas performer friends of mine who'd have to do two shows a day. And I said, how do you walk out and feel fresh? Mm. And they said, we're in the wings and we go, you know what? It's absolutely true. At some point, we'll be too old to do this. At some point, the audience won't turn up. Yep. At some point, this will all go. We love doing it, but it will all go. And they let that thought rest, and then they go, it's not tonight, though. Yeah. And walk oh, out. That's nice. And that's what I because it's, it's true. You know, we think these things are all going to continue. You know, you think what you're doing is all going to continue. Yeah. Well, but at some point, you won't be doing it anymore. And, and that is, that's the truth. You'll be doing something else. Yeah. And so just being grounded, enjoying the moment and not perhaps thinking too far ahead just know it will vanish at some point yeah. enjoy now I think that's, that's, that's worth yeah. it yeah this reminds so I, the, the other day a few, a few days ago it was I had I had some friends over for this like birthday brunch celebration type thing this was my first time hosting like a very big like 30 people thing and I was so stressed because we didn't have enough food and I was mm. like it turned out this supermarket opened at 12 noon that day rather than like 8 in the morning like I was just assuming it would and so I was like frazzled and stuff <laughs> And you know, people were coming in. In my mind, I was just completely like, "There's not enough food. This is this is a disaster kind of thing." And then one of my friends uh, said, "Hold on. Just think that when you're 80 years old and you're on your deathbed or whatever, you're going to give anything to have another day like this one. Yes. So enjoy it and remember that no one cares about the food. You guys, yes. it's all it's all fine. Just enjoy enjoy the day. Yeah. And there's something about that sort of this be sort of being becoming grounded in the present moment." I think it's really important. I mean, what some of the mission controllers, one of their, not regrets, but when they said they look back, they said it felt like gulping fine wine. Oh. They said that, 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 that there were these achievements, but you had to knock it back as quickly as you could to get on with the next one. Yeah. Instead of just enjoying what is happening right now. Mm. And I think that's, that is very important. And during talks, you know, it's, it's, if you've given the talk a million times before, sometimes it's easy to leave the room mentally yeah. and and it's very hard to remain grounded yeah. and just go I'm just talking to an audience right now yeah what I find amazing about psychology of talks is no matter what the size of the audience whether it's 30 or 300 or even say 3,000 the speed at which that group become one person it's phenomenal hmm. so you walk out in front of say a thousand people and the speed at which that those thousand people decide to laugh or not, mm. or to be interested, or not. they become one personality. Mm. And sometimes when you're talking to them, it takes a while to find that personality. Yep. But once you got it, you go, oh, okay. It's like talking to one person. Yeah, I find that phenomenal. I, 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 that's the most. In, in 25 years of speaking, that's the thing that I find incredible. Yeah, that I'm never talking to a group. I'm to, this group become one person, and I'm talking to that one mm. person. That's why I don't get nervous in front of 3,000 people. Because I know that will become one person within 10 minutes. Were you always like that? I think if, if you've got sort of performer's instinct, you're a little bit like that. Mm. But yeah, early on, I was always nervous about it. And I'm still a little bit nervous about yeah. talks and so on. Yeah. But I've just been around the block enough to know that pretty much whatever happens, I can probably cope with it. Um, changing gears a little bit. Uh, I want to talk to you about the magic stuff. 
Yes. So I'm, I am semi in the process of preparing my Magic Circle audition. Act. Oh my goodness, you fool. Uh, <laughs> fool? Um, no, it's great. No, no. You should, you should. <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah, um, and one of, my, one, of the, one of the items on my bucket list is to do a parlor show at the Edinburgh Fringe. Yes. Uh, and I see that you performed at the Edinburgh Fringe. I was one of the directors for eight years. Oh, you were? I was oh. on the board of the Fringe for eight years. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Did you perform there as well? Oh, many times. Yeah, yeah many, what's, many times. What's, what's that like? What's it like? Well, uh, it's a wonderful experience. You should definitely come up and do it. Mm. It's a, a tad competitive mm. because there's about five and a half thousand shows in town. And so it's a bit like street entertaining. You're trying to get an audience yeah. when there's a lot of competition around. But uh, you get to do your show many times. And it's a very good way of, of finding out whether material actually works. Mm. So, yeah, come on up. And you can, what's great about it is you can go and see so many other people's yeah. shows. Here's an interesting thing. I, uh, a couple of years ago, Fringe, I bumped into an experienced reviewer friend of mine. And I said to him, how can you tell when someone's trying to hand you a flyer on the street? Because it's, it's such a fierce marketplace. All the performers are there mm. handing out flyers. I said, is there anything you can, any way you can tell whether it's going to be a good show or not? He said, there is actually. I always say to them, what other shows have you seen that you would recommend? And he said, if they say, oh, I haven't seen anyone else's show, their show will be terrible. Yeah. Where the people that go, oh, I'd recommend so-and-so and so-and-so, yeah. he said, normally their shows are great. Oh. I thought it was really okay. interesting. That if you become too isolated and too yeah. self-absorbed in anything, you're not feeding your mind mm. with other thoughts, other perspective, other ways of doing things. And, and that, for me, is where... Creativity always comes from. It always comes from seeing 10 things and then realizing that there's something in there that you can use to, 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 to become, not, not to take anything from what they're doing, but to enhance your own creativity. Anyway, come on up to the Fringe. It'll be great. Oh, that's uh, I'll come along to show you. You oh, have an perfect. audience of one audience at one. least. Fantastic. Yeah. That's wonderful. I'm going to heckle like you are not going to believe. It's all but. good. I've, I've watched all those comedian response to heckler videos on yes. YouTube, so I've, I've yeah. got a few things in my mind. Um, oh, so the moment yeah. you walk out, I'm going to say, I thought it was going to be Rich McDougall. I love um, his yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, I can't live that one down. It's, it's so awkward. <laughs> my goodness. What sort of magic do you do? Mostly, so when I was at university, I used to do like walk around at the balls and things with cards and sponge balls and occasional flash paper lighter. Yes. Into sponge ball, into coin, into invisible deck, <laughs> into yeah, the, you know, the, the, the basic stuff that can fit into stuff into tuxedo pockets. And yeah, yes. yeah. What about you? Did you ever do color changing pen knife? Uh, no, I did color changing USB memory stick. Oh, well, there we are. You're yeah. from a different generation, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. But that would they I mean you couldn't start with that old thing of have you lost a red knife, which used to be the old way of getting into a group. Oh, did it? <laughs> yeah. The difficulty with close-up magic is you're walking up to a group of people or having a good time, yeah. and then that stops the moment you get yeah. there. And there's always this thing about what's the psychology of getting into the group. Yeah. And it used to be with a color-changing penknife, uh, which for folks who don't know is a penknife that changes color, mm. uh, is you to say, has anyone lost this red penknife? Mm. And when everyone looks, you go, well, how about this blue one? Yeah. That was the way into it. Mm. And it never worked. It was a terrible idea. But it was one way into the group. Yeah. Yeah, this is kind of why I stopped doing the walk around performing, because I, I performed at a few Mabels for about three years. And it was always so stressful. Like, <laughs> it's just like stressful. an hour. Is it like, I'm okay, right. I'm just gonna, 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 kind of get my get my cards together. Maybe do a spring or a, yes. whatever, a dribble or something like that. And like, there's a group over there, but they look like they're having fun. And now I've got to yes. go and like, you know, there's like a intimidating. There's some good-looking dudes there. There's good-looking girls there. Everyone's dressed so nicely, and I'm gonna interrupt and be like, "Hi, I'm I'm the magician. Do you want yes. do you want to see a magic trick?" Yes. <laughs> this is so awkward. 
Yes. Even just thinking about it is making me sweat. Uh, no, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a very hard way of making, making a living. It's why I got out of it, because mm. I, I did that a lot. And, and, you know, it's exactly as you say, a group of people are having a great time, then you arrive. And, and, and they might have a good time, they might not. But I thought, yeah, it's not yeah. for me. It's not for me. My, my, my first experience of doing this scarred me for life. So I would, I'd, I was sort of dabbling. I'd seen Penn and Teller Fool Us, and I, that kind of got me into it. And it was kind of season one when I was, in, I think I was about seventeen in sixth form. And then I learned like a few basic things. Pirated all the DVDs at the time because I had no money. <laughs> um, yeah. Standard. Uh, and then I, ha- we had a family friend who owned a restaurant, and I, I heard that you know the magicians were a thing at a restaurant. So I was like, hey, you know, do you have any parties coming up? Can I perform? And there was this corporate event, and he was like, yeah, we've got this corporate event on Friday. Do you want to come down? I was like, all right, cool, cool. How hard can that be? And then I rocked up to this corporate event with my pockets full of like various different decks and things like that. And it was just like really dark, like <laughs> sort of men in their 30s in suits, <laughs> kind of hands in pockets. And I went to the first group. I busted out the invisible deck and it didn't work. Oh! I, they, they picked like a king of something. And yeah, I was like, yeah. oh, shit, I, yes. I just forgotten the formula. Yes. <laughs> for how to, and, then I was, and then they sort of laughed a bit and then I sort of went away. And I was like, oh, oh. no. And it was, it was a horrendous experience. And I just sort of sat in the corner for the rest of the thing and then told the guy, I oh, know you know, it didn't really work. Don't bother paying me, et cetera, et cetera. And then I kind of uh, transitioned from that into uh, doing uh, volunteering at the local hospice. Right. This was in, in South End on Conceptually very similar. Well, conceptually very similar, yeah. Uh, but they were much nicer. It was yes. like Christmas party. It's like, yeah, you know, the nurses, the staff, all getting yes. all, that, all that stuff. But no, I think, I think there's something around that, this uh, sort of exposing yourself to, the, to rejection and battling through and getting rejected a bunch of times as well. Uh, that just builds character in some way. Yeah, I think it probably does. I mean, the, the, the problem I had was that you have to be entertaining. You have to be funny. There's a lot of pressure on I was mm. a comedy magician. You have to be funny. That's a, that's a lot of pressure. Mm. And, of course, when you give talks, as I do as a psychologist, I don't need to be funny. If I am funny... That's a bonus. It's a bonus. I'm like, oh, he's, but, he's funny as well. But that's about a walkout, <laughs> and then, yeah. then the initial bits aren't funny. I go, you yeah. know what? This is going to be an interesting talk. It's yes. not going to be funny. Well, I don't feel that stress anymore. But, no, I love magic. I love magic. Mm. So I've, I've created quite a few shows. I've done quite a few. Uh, and I did a show called Experimental, which was a show with no performer. Standard thing with creativity is find out what everyone else is doing and do the opposite. Yep. And so I looked when everyone, and I thought, every single show in Edinburgh has got a performer. Mm. I'm going to do a show with no performer. Okay. So the audience came in as just PowerPoint slides, and they took them through a whole series of magic tricks mm. and psychological experiments. Yeah. And that was called Experimental. Oh, and then we did another one, which was Blackpool Magic Convention and oh, Magic nice. Live in, yep. in Vegas, which was a seance show. But the audience were watching an infrared feed from a live darkroom seance so they could see how it was all done. And so I love putting together these kind of quite I hope innovative yeah. shows and most of my close friends are magicians it's an amazing amazing community mm. and I think that's what people so that, there's an interesting point here that I think we forget how important community is and, and magic is incredibly tight knit at, at the one level everyone knows everyone else everyone is supportive and, and, and so on but community is really important in anything in anything and, and, and getting a good reputation within that community, I think is absolutely vital. Yeah, no, I think that's so true. I find the same with, with YouTube. Is it like seems like half my friends are from school and uni and the other half are YouTubers these days. Right. And similarly with our, with our YouTuber Academy course, we find that the people, the beginners that, that actually succeed on YouTube are the ones who made friends. Yes. Who, where, because it is a lonely thing just sitting in front of a camera and talking yes. to it, just like writing, where a lot of writers will have other writer friends because they can all relate to the same thing, form yeah. a little bit of a community. And there's this book uh, I read recently called The Minimalist Entrepreneur, which is about building businesses mm. uh, and like technology businesses and stuff. 
and its main point is start with the community get mm. like, really involved in the community of the thing that you care about get involved in the forums make friends go to meetups and then inevitably you'll find a problem that community has that you can solve with a product and then that's a business yes rather than i'm going to start a business first yes. and then go out and find the community around it you know the one of the very first keynotes i did uh, so we're going back 20 25 years was um it was salesperson of the year for this particular group, I can't right. remember the group, salesperson of the year. So somebody's going to get the award and salesperson of the year got the award. And I was giving a talk and I was sitting at the table with salesperson of the year who just won this award. And I said to them, what's the secret of being a great salesperson? And I thought they were going to get to one of those kind of get to yes quickly or yeah. any of those things. And they looked to the side and went, find a product that everybody wants to buy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so true. Yeah. It's so true. That you kind of think the answer is find something that everybody wants, mm. and you're already you know you're already halfway to the the, the cell on mm. it. I remember that. It was, yeah. it was, it was kind of fun. It's good. It's good. So versus trying to persuade people to buy something they don't really want. Yeah, uh, is actually just go. Sorry, what's the problem? And yeah. and how can I try and sort of solve that? Yeah, I guess the final thing I wanted to ask you about was. What was your uh, Covent Garden Street Magic set? That was terrible. <laughs> it was with it's a double act yep. with uh, my friend Adrian Owen, who is now the same person I went to the States with, who's mm. now very, very well-known neuroscientist. And we're still in touch and very, very good buddies. We had this idea of doing a street act together. And boy, we had no money. We had less than no money. Mm. And at the time, my girlfriend was a nutritionist. And I said, what's the, what's the smallest amount of money we can spend on food and still survive? And she said, porridge, yep. but then with grapefruit segments, because that'll stop you getting scurvy. Right. No idea whether this is true. That's what she said. Okay. So we lived on porridge and grapefruit segments for two weeks. And the act was that I would come out, do some juggling. Then I would get Adrian out of the audience as if he was a genuine member of the audience, teach him to juggle. Mm. Uh, and he sort of messed up and we had some fun with mm. that. And then eventually he learned to juggle because he was a stooge. Mm. And then we got a third person out and did some stuff with them wrapped around with a little bit of magic. It was fairly bad. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying how bad it was, but if I go to Covent Garden now, they're still booing uh, down there <laughs> yeah. 25 years later. And then we went on a tour of the South Coast with the Captain Fearless magic show that we put together. Okay. Which was, we managed to persuade somebody to give us a van. We did yeah. it on behalf of Cancer Research. Yeah. We got a van. Another friend gave us a stage and a sound system. Mm. And we just toured around the South Coast doing stage shows open air for a month and probably one of the best months of my life oh we had we didn't know what we were doing yeah we rocked up we did the show put it into the van we'd occasionally say to audiences we've got nowhere to stay tonight has anyone got a spare room yep. every night was an adventure and and there was you know both of us look back on it very very fond because it was the freedom yeah we were young and could just sort of do anything um, and had no reputation at that point yeah reputation sometimes kind of limit you because you think oh my goodness now I'm supposed mm. to be good yeah <laughs> like, now the audience are sitting there expecting no, exactly. this, this thing where we could just go out and what's it matter yeah that was fun how was old fun. were you at the time uh, it'd be about 18 I think nice. yeah yeah Captain Fearless magic show so yeah they were fun they were fun Wait, like, what, what prompted you to like were you trying to make money just... no no we were trying to raise money for for charity but yeah. I think it was we both got the same attitude mm. So we, we sat up in a tree house in New Forest, just outside Bournemouth. And we, we each got these plans, and we, we, we sort of thought it was quite fun. And we had a rule. We came up with a rule, which is you can only talk about a topic, a plan, three times. And if you haven't done it, 
by the third time, you have to never mention it again and never do it. Oh, okay. And so that was our rule. And we still live by, both of us still do it. You talk about it twice, and if you haven't done it by the third time, just forget about it, you're not going to do it. Mm. And then a few months later, we said, wouldn't it be fun to just tour around with a big magic show or magic show? And we spoke about it twice, and the third time we looked at each other and said, we've got to do it now. <laughs> and we just, we just did it. We just went on the road. It was ridiculous. It was fun. Every, every day was, was man, it broke down, and we ended up doing, performing magic at some surf championship yeah. down on the south coast. It was good. It was good. We had um, a giant rabbit suit, and that was, it was so cold. We were sleeping in the van some nights, and it was so cold on one night that Adrian climbed into the rabbit suit and slept in that. Mm. And the police came along about three in the morning because we shouldn't have been parked where we were, banged on the side of the van, and he sat up in this giant, <laughs> this giant rabbit suit. And he still claims the look on the policeman's face was the best facial expression you'd ever see of total bewilderment. So it's all these things, all these sort of things. Because we were young and, you know, just sort yeah. of thought, thought we could get to the moon. No, that's really inspiring yeah i feel like well one of my i guess quote issues is that because i've been on this sort of career track since the age of like 12 when you decide you want to be a doctor and suddenly it's all mm, about yeah. how will this contribute to my cv etc even even the whole magic stuff is like oh i've fine i've got to figure out a way to tie it in like something about physiotherapy something about hypnosis something about like psychology you know it, it's all for for the sake of something else mm. and i think for me I've, I've never really had a period of almost like a gap here of just like doing stuff for its own sake for the bands, rather than because there is some kind of uh, extra unit of e economic output to <laughs> that, well, that, that thing will squeeze. I think that's what yeah. I was reflecting on earlier on. That's mm. what I was saying about having an interesting life yeah. and a fun life. Because you're going to look back and, and you know, trust me, uh, get a backache at some point and, <laughs> and, and go, you know, I don't feel like getting out of bed today. And, and will it look back and go, yeah, it was fun versus yet I earned a lot of money or mm. I, I did these things that other people see as successful yeah. and, and so on. And I think being successful can be a bit straitjacketing versus that thing of going, you know what, you know what I've always wanted to do and just try it and mm. see what happens. So, yeah, it's interesting to hear you reflect on that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so the, the, there's a book I, I read recently um, called Die With Zero by Bill Perkins. Um, and it's, its whole premise is that you should be aiming to die with zero dollars in your bank account. Mm. And if you die with anything more than that, you've done something wrong. Um, then people will be like, oh, like well, what about the kids? What about charity? And his whole thing is like, oh, easy. Give the money away to charity and kids when they're young, when they need it, rather yeah. than when they're 68 on average yeah. and, you, and you die. Yes. Uh, but beyond that point, his whole thing is like, we, as as generally as sort of successful career type people, the, um, you know, the, the habit of continuing on the career thing and making more money is actually really hard to shake. Yes. And yes. if you look at what people's net worth is in their 70s and 80s, like what the hell are they going to do with all that money yes. other than then just give it away? And so his whole thing is like, you know, really think about the life experience that you want to have, preferably when you're young, because when you're in your 50s, you'll be able to go on cruises and stuff and you have the money for it, but like you really won't be able to backpack through Eastern uh, Europe for a month. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I was young, I wanted to be a circus performer. <laughs> and, and so I, I did a course on flying trapeze. Oh, Do you okay. know how hard flying trapeze is? Do you, have you the I, Boy, it's the hardest thing. I mean, even just hanging off the bar. Yeah. 
And it's so physically demanding and painful that I thought, oh, this is the last thing I want, I want to do. Yeah. Uh, and, and so within a couple of weeks, I thought, this isn't me. But other way, if I hadn't done that, I'd be convincing myself I'd be the greatest flying trapeze performer for yeah. the rest of my life without having <laughs> yeah. these, these regrets. But what about you? What, what, what thing, if, 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 I don't know, tomorrow you've got two weeks off, three weeks, a month off, mm. and you can do anything at all. Have you got any ambitions or anything you've never done, like, you know, clowning at a circus? Is sort of something, like, is there something where you go, I'd really like to give that a try. The, there's a couple of things. Um, one is I, I would love to learn how to snowboard. Right. That seems like a really cool thing to do. I'd love to actually take this magic stuff a bit more seriously to be like, okay. you know what? I know it's not going to make money relative to YouTube, but, that, but that's fine. <laughs> I'm just going to put my act together, audition for the magic circle, try and go, try and go for AIMC or whatever that is and really yeah. kind of go ham on the thing. I watched um, Peter Wardell's uh, Comic oh, yeah. Garden Street Magic DVD back in the day. Yeah, yeah. And then he actually, he, he and I talked on Instagram because he discovered one of my videos randomly. And I, I, I've always had in, the, in, in my mind that oh, I'd, I'd love to have a really good cups and balls act to be able to do a, a, in Common Garden. So it's like those random things where it's a project to work on that's not, the aim is not to make money. So Pete came across a few years ago uh, to interview me. He spent the whole afternoon interviewing me about mm. psychology and magic. By the end of the afternoon, he realized he hadn't pressed the record button. For, for things. So, <laughs> yeah. so he reminded me of it the other day yeah. on, on Twitter. So Pete's great. Mm. So you know, you're setting that goal of um, performing cups and balls in Covent Garden, that's totally doable yeah. and totally terrifying. Yeah, I was just like, like thinking about it, I'm just like, oh my God. But that would be an amazing project. <laughs> yeah, That'd be every, amazing. Yeah, every time I go to the Apple store in Covent Garden, I just like hang around and be like, oh yeah, that guy, same lines, that's good. I like how he's repeated this thing about a thousand times. It's yes. really good. And he's got every single possible out for every single yes. heckle from the audience. And it's just, there's something about that that feels really but good. But standing there and doing it, I mean, you can give it a go. Yeah. That would be that would be terrifying and wonderful. Yeah, I should definitely do that. Yeah. I'll come and watch you. Oh, nice! Your you first <laughs> show of Cups and Balls in Covent Garden or up in Edinburgh. I'll, I'll drop you a message. I will be there. Amazing. I will be there. Yes. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Thank you for inspiring. This has been a it's been a good a good sesh. Uh, well, I don't know. We just chatted, but um, yeah. yeah, folks find any of it helpful. That's yeah, good. Absolutely. That's um, good. Richard, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Uh, where can people learn more about you, find about your stuff? Um, they, they can look on Twitter at Richard Wiseman. Um, I've got a website as well, but mostly it's the, 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 the Twitter stuff that keeps people up to date. And they can drop me a line. I'll ignore it, but they can yeah. drop me a line. No, no, they can drop me a line, <laughs> uh, and that'd be great. Uh, but thank you very much for inviting me, and good luck with the book. I um, yeah. look forward to, to hearing about the progress. Of thank it. you very much. All right, so that's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are going to be linked down in the video description or in the show notes, depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then do please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this in full HD or 4K on YouTube, then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode. That would be awesome. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might like to check out this episode here as well, which links in with some of the stuff that we talked about in the episode. So thanks for watching. Uh, do hit the subscribe button if you aren't already, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.